special episode of The Lancet Voice. I'm Jessamy Baganall. And I'm Gavin Cleaver. And today we're going to be talking about how the role of the state has increased in all of our lives since COVID-19. What do we mean by the role of the state? You can look at it in a, a couple of different ways. There is, of course, the imposition of greater state control over individual freedoms. And of course, by that we mean lockdowns, uh, enforced social distancing, the extra rules regarding people personal freedoms that have been brought in uh, since the pandemic began, um, began to hit countries. Uh, but you can also look at it in terms of greater state intervention into the markets and in people's, in, in people's employee-employer relationships. So obviously the state uh, across Europe and indeed to a more limited extent in America has uh, propped up people's wages, it's saved uh, businesses that have had to shut down due to the social distancing rules. Um, it's done many, many more interventions than that. So those are the two major ways that the state is taking a larger role in people's lives. And it's a big change from the politics uh, of the last few decades in, in, most, uh, in most countries. It's interesting, isn't it? Because my view of kind of um, politics and sort of philosophical politics is that there's always sort of two sides and people want one thing or, or want the other where do you stand on how much the state should be involved in our lives i think it's always important that the state has to strike the right balance i think that's important across all of philosophical politics uh, with, with so much political debate we always hear about two polarized sides of the debate whereas actually pretty much every state is trying to end up somewhere on the continuum there are almost no examples of uh a state that is fully in control of the market and a state that fully leaves the market up to itself in terms of the market. And there's almost no examples of a state that fully controls people's everyday lives or a state that completely leaves people to do what they want. So every state really ends up on some kind of continuum. And um, it's just interesting that pretty much every state as a response to this coronavirus outbreak has uh, become more interventionist. I guess you could frame the debate quite easily there um, in terms of both people's lives and the markets as interventionist uh, versus hands-off, laissez-faire, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and so my impression is that um, we'll be seeing an uh, interventionist state in both people's freedoms and in the markets for a very long time after this is over. Uh, but. Uh, I am not an expert by any means, so that's why I wanted to speak to uh, Professor Philippe van Paris from Leuven University in Belgium, who is uh, a very prominent political philosopher uh, with uh, many publications uh, about the role of the state in people's everyday lives in both of those spheres. Uh, my name is Philippe van Paris. I'm a philosopher and live in Brussels in uh, I teach at the uh, universities of Louvain and Leuven. Well, I really appreciate you joining me today, Philippe. So, um, obviously, in the midst of this COVID-19 crisis across Europe and across the world, we've seen this kind of massive expansion of the state, the moving of state apparatus and generosity and support into places where it wouldn't normally be expected. So. Is this a kind of really notable expansion? And is this kind of a moment of opportunity for, a, for us to kind of change tack, do you think, as a society? 
Well, it's important to distinguish different interpretations of what an expansion of the state may mean. So if one means by that uh, um, nationalization of industry, expansion of bureaucracy, this is not exactly what is happening. I mean, during the crisis, there are even many bureaucrats in some countries that are out of work. And in some sense, the, the state apparatus is uh, shrinking. Uh, being <laughs> albeit temporarily but because uh, there are two other uh, senses in which you could say there is an expansion of the role of the state first of all there are massive transfers uh, things that would have been regarded as totally irresponsible financially just uh, uh, a few weeks or months ago uh, are done uh, everywhere uh, these things are done uh, all over the place uh, in uh, in all countries so there is a, a sudden expansion of the state budget, which is meant to be largely temporary. And there is a further sense, which is an expansion of the role of the state, which is that the state has become, or the government, or various levels of government in some countries have become incredibly uh, intrusive. Even in war times, uh, I don't think there ever was this degree of micromanagement of uh, people's behavior, the fact that uh, children cannot go and visit their grandparents, the fact that uh, you have to wear masks in, in the street, uh, uh, the fact that you have to keep distances that you, can go <laughs> that you cannot uh, go to the cinema. I mean, all these things are, are massive uh, restrictions of our freedom by the government, and this is indeed something um, very new, it's certainly unprecedented in my existence. So I, I think you're right to talk about it in terms of uh, transfer of goods rather than um, role of the state. So this transfer of goods, uh, obviously you've spent a lot of your career talking about the uh, universal basic income, uh, greater government support, greater freedom for the individual but supported in that way by the government. Do you think this moment provides a greater opportunity for that than normal times? For, for us to change tack, I mean, in terms of, as a society? Well, uh, I believe that uh, there are a number of things that will stay, and uh, some of them uh, may be for the good, but some uh, not so much for the good. So um, certainly I, I believe that some of this micromanagement which I don't regard as a, as a nice role for the state, for the government to play, but sometimes it's a necessary role. I think uh, that will stay uh, as long as, not only as long as the crisis uh, persists, but as long as we feel there is a danger that uh, something analogous will start again. And so that will be something long term. Uh, but uh, not exactly desirable. I mean, it's rather part of a dystopia of a, of a state uh, that is forced, I mean, actually for good reasons, to micromanage people's uh, um, behavior, rather than uh, some sort of beautiful ideal of uh, the government finally being able to play the role which, uh, uh, which roles in which it has been displaced by the market uh, unnecessarily or illegitimately over over the last years. So that uh, um, in terms of uh, seizing it as an opportunity, it is uh, at least uh, ambivalent because it may also be a moment where something was triggered 
that will not go quickly and that is not all that positive. Is it your sense that this crisis has kind of redefined the role of the state? It, for people who doubted that the government had an important uh, role to play, uh, this has certainly um, been a wake-up moment because uh, there are things which the market uh, is better at uh, than the state. But uh, whatever the economist, uh, I mean, it is well known, whatever the economist called uh, externalities, whether positive or negative, uh, there are things... Um, for which the market is uh, very badly equipped, so that the state uh, or the government, various level, has to intervene. Sometimes it can do that by correcting the market, by uh, imposing some taxes in order to internalize the externalities, as the economists put it, uh, or, or, or on the contrary, give subsidies when the, when the externalities are, uh, are positive. But uh, in cases like uh, contagion, uh, contamination, uh, uh, an epidemic, uh, a pandemic. It's not, you can't really try to control these externalities by taxing and subsidizing. Uh, you do some of it, but uh, you have also to impose uh, certain behaviors and prohibit uh, other behaviors. And so this protective role of uh, the state uh, as uh, it's certainly regarded now, when you look at the public opinion surveys, uh, in most countries there's a massive support uh, for uh, this sort of uh, active role, sometimes repressive role, uh, of uh, the government. So I think this, mm, this is a major, a major difference. But of course, this is one thing of which uh, the, the crisis has made us more acutely aware. But there is uh, another thing of which uh, the, mark, the, the crisis has made us uh, acutely aware is the, the incredible importance, also in terms of social justice, of the public space. Huh? Because uh, now, due to the confinement, to the lockdown, um, many people in many countries are stuck in their private spaces, but these private spaces are very unequally distributed between the people. And so for people who have a nice uh, home uh, in a big garden, uh, being confined uh, involves some cost in terms of what that can do, uh, but it's uh, far less uh, painful than for someone who's stuck in a very small space with a, with a large family. So that, uh, I mean, it makes us aware of the fact that uh, a public space, a high quality public space, where which is not only uh, a space for a sustainable mobility, but also for um, uh, enjoyable immobility, that this is a major uh, factor, in a uh, major equalizing factor, a major component of people's real freedom. And so it's universally accessible to everyone, but of course it is of far greater importance for people who have a private space that is uh, very limited. And so that I believe among the things of which we've uh, become aware, uh, there is also then this aspect. I mean, it struck me, in fact, as it had never struck me before, uh, which is the, the, the immense importance of uh, the public space. And there, of course, there is again uh, an important role for public uh, authorities that uh, uh, public space is also a, a massive um, realm uh, of uh, negative externalities in terms of uh, the pollution of all sorts that is created by the vehicles we use. 
and uh, 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 a sort of a very active role played by the government at that level, which is not uh, may not need many bureaucrats, not no uh, many uh, much redistribution at that level, but you need a, a strong regulation in order to um, to create this uh, public good for everyone, which is of particular importance for the people who are least well off. Yes, I think it's important, of course, um, to bear in mind throughout this crisis that it does tend to strike, though, you know, as we say, with almost all of health research, it does tend to strike the least well off, the hardest. But moving specifically on to health, would you say the health of citizens has now formed a more central part of the responsibility of the state? Well, our health will always be a shared responsibility between us and uh, society at, at large. And uh, that is for, for two um, main reasons. Uh, the first reason is that uh, health uh, is a public good. Again, I mean, it's a matter of uh, positive and negative externalities. So uh, the, the state, uh, in, for many contagious illnesses uh, forces people to take uh, vaccines from uh, an early age. Um, this is meant to be good for the people who uh, have to accept the vaccine, but it's also good for the people who they won't contaminate uh, if they never get uh, the illness. But more broadly, of course, having a healthy workforce uh, not to have uh, too many burnouts, uh, not to have too many professional illnesses of various sorts, uh, is also public good. It's something that's uh, good for the immediate uh, beneficiaries, and people who don't get the burnout, uh, who don't get ill because of uh, working conditions, but it's also good for society at large because uh, a healthy workforce is uh, important for everyone. So this is the first reason why health is also in part the uh, responsibility of the government. But there is a second reason, which is that uh, our healthcare systems um, in various ways are a very important part of our mechanisms for greater social justice. Because our, uh, we have uh, in some countries uh, very developed uh, healthcare insurance system in other countries like the United Kingdom, you have a, a healthcare system that is to a large extent uh, nationalized, that is uh, a public. But in one way or another, uh, these systems try to implement some form of solidarity that goes beyond self-interested insurance. And that means that uh, the healthcare and um, uh, the, the on all forms in the medicines, etc., uh, of uh, uh, everyone are paid to various extents by everyone. But we know ex ante that there will be redistribution. That means that uh, we know in advance that some people are high risk people, and we also know in advance that some people will contribute less uh, to the whole of the system because they are poor. So it's part of uh, a redistributive uh, system. So it's part of uh, solidarity uh, organized at the level of society at large. And uh, of course, some people may be expensive for that system because of some choices they make, because they are mountain climbers or because they are smokers or 
because they um, expose themselves too much to the sun or whatever. And, uh, and that means that the, and the, the behavior, uh, the chosen behavior, and not bad luck, but the chosen behavior of uh, every beneficiary of the whole system will affect the cost of the whole system and therefore the burden to be uh, borne by uh, the people who contribute to it. And that is practically everyone, but to very different extents. And there we have a, a second way in which you could say, well, the state needs to take some responsibility for the health of uh, the people because you, you can't just allow people through their own choice to free ride on the solidarity of uh, the others. So what should we do about smokers? Should we say, well, uh, if you smoke and get cancer, too bad, uh, uh, society won't pay for it. Or will you try to, to do it, to organize it differently by saying, well, we need to charge people. Uh, if uh, charge them more, uh, if they smoke, they'll have to pay an additional contribution to the to the healthcare system. But however we organize this, there is there unavoidably a sort of tension between, on the one hand, solidarity, which is very important for social justice reason, and on the other hand, uh, the idea of toleration, of uh, respect for the diversity of uh, the conceptions of the good life. There is a tension between the two. And uh, the more important we uh, regard uh, solidarity with respect to uh, or compared to this uh, uh, equal respect for all conceptions of the good life, the more there will be a tendency on the part of the government to dictate how people uh, should behave. So in these two ways, so the internalization of uh, externalities on the one hand, and secondly, and the sort of the management of uh, uh, of a solidarity system uh, that also uh, gives uh, some, uh, creates some obligations on the part of uh, the beneficiaries. In these two ways, I think uh, there is uh, an important role and to some extent an increasingly important role to be played by the government in uh, our, uh, the management of our health. Yes, I think those are very important points to make that uh, the, the health of its citizens is already so important to the state. So finally then, the, these measures, this transfer of goods that we've seen in so many economies around the world, uh, to what extent do they meet the criteria for universal basic income? And do you think this is a kind of meaningful progress towards a universal basic income? Well, uh, there are, and so uh, certainly the, the, the current crisis has uh, created uh, yet another unprecedented upsurge of interest in basic income uh, throughout the world and from India to, to California. But the proposals uh, come in uh, uh, very different versions. Also, there are some people who advocate uh, a temporary basic income, an emergency basic income, as it was called in, in the UK, where over 150 members of parliament I saw uh, supported a, a letter asking for the introduction of such an emergency basic income. And that's meant to be uh, to last only for the length of the crisis. As a result of a lockdown, a number of people are suddenly deprived of their usual source of income. Uh, something needs to be done very urgently. You could try to do that in a targeted way. You don't need to 
in principle, you don't need to 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 distribute income to everyone, to the people who don't need it and and wouldn't know how to spend it anyway. But uh, but there are many people who are suddenly deprived of all income. If if you try to do it in a targeted way, it may take time to identify to and to, to specify the criteria to, to to identify the people who satisfy this criteria and and by the time you you've done that uh, the crisis may be over but the people need the money straight away and, and therefore you have this first set of proposals where people say well uh, we know we'll be giving the money to people who don't need it but it's being needed now temporarily, one month, two months, three months, uh, by uh, very badly by some people, and to make absolutely sure they get it and that I get it in, in time, let's give it to everyone, and then we'll make it uh, taxable. We we'll, and, and we'll claim it back from the people who are rich enough at a, at a later stage. So that's one type of proposal, but that applies only for the duration of the lockdown. Then you have a second type of proposal. That applies then to uh, the, the period after the lockdown, when you have to reboot to kickstart the the economy. So uh, the shops are open again. Uh, economy the economy should start moving, and there, uh, and some people have been arguing also in other contexts, also in the context of the earlier um, uh, the, the earlier recession. Uh, people have been arguing for so-called quantitative easing for the people. Quantitative easing, just a monetary, monetary policy that consists in creating more money, usually in the form of cheap loans by uh, private banks. Then, uh, given that the cheap the, the, the interest rates are already so low, um, uh, not only in the European Union, but so far beyond, uh, many people have been arguing for uh, direct transfers to people. You do that once you do that perhaps a second time 500 euros or pounds and then the second time probably a thousand euros at the moment where you need to increase purchasing power so that uh, businesses can regain confidence that uh, there will be consumers to buy their product that's the second set of proposals uh, where uh, the funding is uh, through um, is uh, through money creation and again, if you think, well, uh, what's the point of distributing money to people whose uh, propensity to spend the marginal euro, the marginal pound is very low because they're already so rich? Yes, okay, but again, make it uh, taxable, make, make it part of uh, the people's taxable income, and you'll be able to claw it back uh, from uh, people uh, who uh, anyway wouldn't have spent that, uh, that money. So there's a second sort of, of proposal. Both of them are just temporary. That's not a genuine uh, basic income. But the crisis has also fueled again the pleas for uh, a permanent basic income. Part of the, the argument that applies specifically in this case consists in saying, well, had we had a basic income as a sort of uh, floor below all other income, well, people's subsistence would have been secured when, without any needing any emergency measure. So it would have been there, would have been modest income, no doubt, and uh, some it wouldn't have made uh, an employment insurance uh, redundant, but all this, all the rest would have been less urgent 
uh, less uh, voluminous. It would have, uh, wouldn't have been uh, needed at the size at which it was needed now if one could rely on basic security for everyone. Everyone could count on it and uh, that would help us, uh, help, would have helped our societies and our economies to be more resilient faced with that situation. Also, if you go back to the second uh, sort of proposal I mentioned before, uh, had you had, if you have in place something like a basic income, well, then it's very easy when you don't have enough inflation just uh, to increase the flow uh, in, the, in the pipeline. So instead of giving uh, on a regular basis, say, 500 pounds or 600 pounds, well, you increase the amount uh, for one month when it's needed for, by the economy, you increase that amount by 300 euros or 500 euros or whatever is uh, needed. And more generally, uh, so, and of course, argument for basic income doesn't only apply to the context of, uh, of uh, uh, pandemics. Uh, and so more generally, having this, uh, this unconditional floor uh, is meant to help us address, uh, to help our societies and our economies address the specific challenges of the 21st century. And so we have increased polarization uh, due to, uh, to, to the technological change and and the type of globalization we'll, we've had and will keep having, certainly for services. So we have uh, an increased polarization of people's earning power. Uh, we have uh, uh, an increasing precariousness of, uh, of many jobs uh, uh, related to that. Uh, having this floor is something that uh, is an essential component of the institutional structure we need uh, with one essential uh, uh, complement, which is uh, lifelong blended learning, uh, which is uh, lifelong learning that is facilitated by the existence of this floor, uh, but that and that will enable you to adjust and keep adjusting throughout your lives uh, to uh, the economic and technological uh, uh, context. And there is a, a complementarity between these two measures because the, the floor is what makes it possible to have a far smoother uh, back and forth between employment, uh, training, education in the broader sense, and then voluntary activities of all sorts in particular, but not only uh, within the, the household. And so um, basic income is uh, an essential component, not the only one, of course, uh, which we need in order to face these uh, specific challenges, in order to secure both economic efficiency in that context and greater social justice by giving more options, more uh, bargaining power, more real freedom to those with the least of it. Philip, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time today to, to chat with me. So yeah, I think it was clear there from my uh, chat with Philippe that um, state intervention has, has increased. It could be here to stay for a while but also that in a number of ways, it's nothing particularly to be scared of. No, and I think that, you know, a lot of governments or the UK government at least has sort of described it as putting a hug around people so that they don't feel sort of lost and, and um, on their own. And, you know, when we compare it to the financial crisis, this feels like a much better way to, to deal with it. 
Yeah, and I think the difference that has to be emphasised between this and the financial crisis, which you know only applies if this doesn't go on for too long in terms of the impacts on economics, is that there should be an immediate bounce back. And that is another really important difference between this and, for example, the Spanish flu to emphasise, is that um, it's not a particularly deadly virus like the Spanish flu was. So actually, the labour reserves in terms of uh, the operation of the economic engine shouldn't be too damaged. It should be a relatively quick bounce back. Obviously, that depends on an innumerable amount of factors. But um, I think that's definitely the hope amongst most economies, which is why you see these kind of um, periods of intervention. You know, like the, um, for instance, here in the UK, the uh, intervention related to uh, propping up people's wages, furloughed workers, uh, is being renewed every three months. And um, I'm sure there are a lot of people in government who are pushing the government to open up. And, you know, I, I hate that phrase, honestly, opening up the markets. It doesn't really make much sense. Uh, I'm sure there are a lot of people in government pushing the government to open up quicker than they're doing. But they're doing it in this kind of slow, staged way. And they're doing that to strike this balance between um, preserving the economic power that's there, because you wouldn't want to see something like the 36 million unemployed uh, that currently have in the US. Uh, but also, obviously as you put it, throwing this hug, but presumably a socially distanced one, around, exactly. uh, around workers. And I guess, Gavin, what it made me think about was this concept of immunity passports. You know, nothing really, um, could, such an intervention as to stop people from moving around unless they've had COVID-19 or haven't. And there's a lot of different views about whether this is something that's going to happen or whether it's not. Do you think, just very briefly, are the sort of ethical things that we have to consider? I think there's been a lot of chat about it to the extent where we will see at least some form of immunity passport or some people returning to work because they are immune to COVID-19. Now, aside from the scientific unknowns, as we always talk about, we don't actually know um, the levels to which presence of COVID-19 antibodies give people immunity which i think is a huge problem up front exactly so i mean we almost have to take the science out of it and just say you know perhaps assuming that people do have some form of, of immunity for say months two years and and that immunity passports were to be sort of floated what are the things that we would have to think about Yes, it is a perfectly put philosophical question because we've, we've removed all the real world concerns. <laughs> exactly. And that's why I thought you'd be so well placed to answer it. <laughs> Thanks. Um, <clears throat> so it's a really extraordinary concept because what you're really saying is that um, this negative thing that happened to you, you got COVID-19, you recovered, maybe you're asymptomatic, at least the antibodies are present there, then actually rewards you with all of these freedoms that other people... Uh, aren't able to have. So through no fault of their own, say 10% of the country has antibodies. And in fact, I think the government figure yesterday was their estimate was 17% of London, for example. Say 17% of London can get back to work and actually the pubs can open up again and the restaurants can open up again and they can go back into offices as if nothing ever changed. Look at that from the point of view of the other 83%. 17% of people in London can suddenly live a completely normal life. One that is forbidden by law for, for the other 83%. So you then get yourself into a situation, I would assume, where the other 83%, especially those 
those who uh, would be less affected by the virus. I, I think there would be a situation where those people would actually try to get themselves infected and develop the antibodies because that would enable them to return back to, to life for what they perceive as a, very small, uh, as a very small bump in the road, so to speak. The old chicken pox party theory. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, but in this case, having the chicken pox allows you to completely go back to normal and throw uh, mm. off all of these shackles that we've all been living under for the last few months. So I think the question of immunity passports has to be really, really carefully dealt with. You, you would really struggle, I think, to, um, to visibly give anyone who had immunity to COVID-19 suddenly all of their freedoms back because you would, uh, you would have an awful lot of unhappy people on your hands, especially if, as we've seen from these kind of early studies, under 20% in pretty much every country that's had a widespread COVID-19 infection have present antibodies. So looking at the remainder of the population being put into an extraordinarily difficult situation and made to sit there in their house, not able to see their loved ones, not able to see friends, not able to go anywhere, um, stay under the same restrictions. Well, 20% of people through absolutely no uh, design or anything necessarily positive that they've done are allowed to completely live their lives as normal again. I think it really throws up massive ethical implications. It does, and maybe it's something that we need to talk a bit more about on a, on a future episode. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think uh, potentially getting a, a philosopher who's thought a, a bit harder about it than I have would be a good idea, it would be an interesting chat. Uh, you can contact us at podcast.thelancet.com and you can listen to our whole archive back on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, any archive that you want to. Uh, thanks for listening. And see you again next time.